Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Always good to be here. You're looking crisp today, mate. Do my best. Saying off air how when I sit next to you, I feel like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> Just a mess. I did go from wearing a lot of t-shirts last year to wearing shirts and suits every day now. So That's it. It's out of COVID, yeah. no excuse. Just goes... Just psych. It's cyclical, like the economy. No, oh, isn't it just? Um, We're trying to get some waddle hoodie, hoodies though. Get and yeah, are you doing that? Pretty quick too. Yeah. Where are you getting them done? Not sure. We have a we have a merch guy. Okay. Merch gal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, taking care of all the merch yeah. research. So that's where this beanie come from. I was telling you, but it's not good. Sorry, sorry, mate. It's not that great quality. It's not. And it took eight weeks to get from China. So we're going to go with the Aussie one. Surprisingly cheaper. Yeah. Um, because they just do the embroidery here. Ah, uh, instead of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, you can't see this because it's audio-only podcast, but uh, welcome to this week's Two Cents segment. We're a bit more relaxed. Drew Meredith, financial planner, myself, and Dr. Andrew Derrimuth, Esquire economist, uh, joining you in the studio today and answering your questions as per usual, but also providing you with an update. This is probably, just quickly before you get excited, this is probably the weakest month, like week we've ever had for questions. We went from a super strong week of questions. We could have carried some over too. We could have because we didn't get to them all last week, but we try and keep it current, you know, current affairs here on the Australian Investors Podcast. So what you, you, you raised an eyebrow and you looked very excited. I do this all the time. <laughs> yeah, you do. You get this excited face. Go, go, what, what, what was it? I can't remember now. I mean, we're talking about Ted Lasso. I'm a little bit behind oh, yeah. the ball here. Yeah. Drew is very excited. This is a, the official recommendation. Go on. Finally re- finished uh, third season of Ted Lasso mm-hmm. last night. Is it good? Got to be one of the best TV shows ever made. You reckon? Ever. Wow. That's yeah. a bold. This is the one how he goes and becomes a soccer coach. And he's from America, right? Exactly. Yeah. The American football coach becomes a soccer coach, laughing stock. And it's like transforming an entire club and team of people. Okay. Uh, super interesting. So this is on uh, Apple for those of you that have yeah. the subscription. It's like, what's it? Wholesome. Wholesome. Heartwarming. Yeah. Heartwarming. Oh, jeez. This is getting emotional <laughs> here on the here on the show. Um, but anyway, what have you been working on? I noticed there was something in your notes, because we do notes in a Google Doc that we kind of work to. Drew always does more notes than me. <laughs> and um, there was a note here, distressed debt last night. Was that 
Like, did you go out? Yeah. <laughs> Distressed some debt last night? Yeah. yeah. Of course. This is how Drew spends his uh, Wednesday <laughs> nights recordings on Thursday morning. Trying to find Hump night yeah. is distressed debt night. <laughs> Watch no, out, we, So one of the unique things we try to do at Waddle and with the, the business Atchison consultants that we have is find unique investments and kind of introduce them and, and educate our clients and, and, and audience on, on hmm. different things. So this was a, quite a unique asset class. I'm sure you listeners have probably heard of uh, Oak Tree Capital, how it marks, yep. and these in Blackstone and those sort of groups. So basically it's a, a part of fixed income or bond markets that looks to invest into companies or buy the bonds of companies that aren't performing particularly well for one reason or another. Mm. So we hosted an educational dinner about that last night, which was pretty oh, cool. kind of thought-provoking and some heated discussions, which is always good. Heated? How does it get heated? What do you mean? Well, there's this perception in distressed or stressed markets and particularly around private equity that it's like vultures. So you're trying to buy distressed assets, mm. chop them up, sell them off and sack all the people. Yep. Uh, but these strategies or the one we we're talking about last night is the complete opposite of that. It's where you're, you know, if you think about investing in a smaller company, could be one of our companies, your, yep. your company. Yeah, it could be distressed. Uh, that, I am pretty you know, stressed. Cyclical issue in terms of something happens to the economy that hits it for a short period of time and you had, not that you have debt, but you had more you yeah. had, had more debt than you probably should at the time and didn't see this coming. So how do you help them get to the other side of that and benefit from when they recover? Instead of taking equity, you take a debt position. And- take debt, convert it to equity and get equity-like returns from a senior secured or, or a debt loan position. Oh, cool. So, so who, do, who was being, so who were the students in the class last night? Uh, so a lot of our probably eighty percent clients that we currently work with, okay. um, and then a few that we're, we you know call it prospects or or people yeah. that are a part of our network. Yeah, cool. That sounds really interesting. Um, and your takeaways. your mate uh, Ash O'Connor. Oh, really? Was uh, yeah, was, ah, was talking about Australia. He was yeah, the one that got that. grilled. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Senior secured loans. Few glasses of wine, and he was <laughs> up at the end of the table trying to explain it all. <laughs> now let me tell you. Um, so what was the takeaway then? I think there were a few things around. Fees were naturally uh, a focus of it, so performance fees. But I yeah. made a point during it that when you talk about a performance fee for a strategy like this, it's not like a performance fee on an equity strategy where you're buying and selling stocks. Mm. This is people going into a business, running it for a period of time, and then selling it at a profit uh, or a high level. So it's where where when we talk about it a lot, which is you can get the market return for free. Mm. So where you're paying high fees, you want to be making sure you're getting something significantly different. So mm. that was probably one of those uh, education yeah, pieces. Yeah, yeah exactly. The yeah. performance fees aren't aren't just you know they are they you want to make sure that performance fee is is being earned. Yeah, not just because markets are going up. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, so let's start in reverse. Interest rates. What's the latest, Doctor Andrew Dermoth? Uh, apparently, all eyes are on, uh, I think Evan Lucas was saying, 27th of July. We've got a big inflation piece for end of June. But, Seven uh, days from now, from the day of recording. Exactly. And then you'll have a meeting after that um, in the first week of August mm-hmm. of the RBA. So that'll probably drive the decision. Yield curves continue to suggest that interest rates will fall at some point. Even my business partner, Jamie, is now suggesting ah. we could have a cut next next year. Next year, next unfortunately, year. for Andrew Jeremith. Yep. Uh, but everywhere you look, like, I think I've put a chart. Did you see the chart I dropped yeah, in? I did see the chart. It's just pointing south. From That's our, year over year US inflation. But I don't... Measured on this a This is headline basis. inflation, right? This is yeah. not core inflation. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then, I mean, you had, uh, I think Canadian inflation data came out and that just dropped under 3%. And New Zealand inflation data is slowing. And all these kind of supply chain 
truth and inflation issues appear to be disappearing, but you're also getting uh, the rollover effect, which is if you're measuring, so the chart we've got is measuring June 22 uh, inflation, which up to June 22, inflation had been 9%. Mm. And now you're measuring it to the current June and it's 3% compared to that because the starting point is so much higher than where we are today. Yep. Um, so then that's the, the unique thing about inflation is that it's measured from point to point. Yeah. And if it was higher, if prices were high, then it's hard to be higher and higher than that again. Yeah. Uh, but the trend is clearly, so you saw January 21 at 1.4, peaked at 9.1 in the US on a rolling monthly basis, announced below 3% in June. So this would point to US inflation t- being tamed. What was the phrase that you gave us like a week or two ago? Was it Victor Svets? Where yeah. you were talking about, I can't remember the great, what was the phrase? Um, where basically inflation, I saw a few things more along these lines. It was like where immaculate, infla- immaculate inf- disinflation. Yeah. This idea that inflation could actually just slowly remove itself. Exactly. Which I was thinking about that more. I was chatting to some people about this. It tends to make, it actually probably makes the most sense of all the forecasts, to be honest. Because if you look back before COVID, there was no inflation. We no, didn't no. have inflation anywhere in the world except maybe China. And that wasn't probably that real for like 10 years. Exactly. So what's different, I guess, is the question between then and now? We still got this. I think we still rely on what happened last time and the previous cycles. But this cycle is incredibly different. Mm. Like we did have a significant change in one, we shut down economies, we shut down supply chains, and we threw a whole heap of money yeah. at everyone at the same time. Uh, and I think we kind of forget about that and we see inflation as being this kind of linear that it, it doesn't disappear. Um, and I mean, there's other unique parts, I think I put in the notes as well, that are happening in the economy, that inflation, that higher interest rates aren't impacting everyone the same way. I yep. think it's something like one in only one in three people, only one in three houses has a mortgage against it. Yeah, but this is interesting because I saw your note about this, um, and I kind of disagree with you. I've kind of just no, no, you're right. So one in three Australian, one in three, three Australian households have a mortgage, but they're owner occupied. One in three does not have a mortgage. Yep. And then there's the other one, which is like I think it's like investment, something like this. Um, Probably the case in commercial property as well. I think there's about three about million it. commercial uh, rental properties in Australia. So. This is interesting because I actually think that property, because it's such a liquid asset, even though it's liquid, it's not completely liquid. Like you can't just buy and sell in a matter of days. It typically takes a few months. And then it's not really orderly if it's un, if it's in a sale environment. So my point is that I don't think you don't need these big numbers. I don't think you need a big number for property to fall or to rise. We've seen that recently. The reason that house prices have probably held up is actually because there's fewer transactions or yeah. fewer there's fewer stock in the major cities yeah, yeah with the indices a benchmark too so what i mean to say is like yeah this whole property thing is totally disjointed from what people thought would happen and this obsession with unemployment yeah as well where we had more unemployment data and the i think thirty-two thousand more jobs were created and then i think coles came out and said they've got 18 applications for every one job and it used to be 11. so <laughs> yeah. it's just there's something doesn't make sense because the economy, uh, mm. unemployment's low, the economy's doing well, interest rates continue to keep increasing and nothing nothing major is happening yet. You've had some explosions in, in the banking sector. Prop, uh, builders naturally, too. Yeah, in, and liquidity that's, being removed. But, yeah. And that's probably um, that unique 
thing that we forget about. We all talk about this being an unprecedented time because interest rates have gone up so quickly. Mm. But it's actually a normal mm. time. If, mm. Like, yeah, the transition yeah, was different. Just, yeah. You should get money. You should get interest when you put cash in the bank. You shouldn't yeah. be not be getting zero. Yeah. Like the cost of capital should be above zero. Yeah. Uh, and it's there was I'm writing trying to work through an article at the at the moment which talks about the fact that maybe we're still build, building portfolios like we're in a zero interest rate environment. Oh, good segue into your the point you wanted to talk about here. But yes, that's interesting. Just before you get to that, um, I was chatting to some mortgage brokers just a couple of hours ago, and they were saying that the rates that they're getting on the mortgages that they offer in Australia now are no longer as ferociously competitive as they were. So there's no discount, there's no real discounts and things like that now being applied to a lot of mortgages. Yeah. And their belief is that even though the RBA isn't increasing interest rates, banks are still slowly increasing rates and reducing discounts. Definitely. So what that means is their 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 net interest margin is getting squashed because they've got a term deposit on offer for five percent, but their mortgage rates are only six percent. Yeah. Whereas they're traditionally two or two or three percent interest margin, yeah, uh, good level be two, apart. two and a half. Yeah. So they're really struggling to maintain that profitability, which is then pushing onto homeowners. So it's still impacting homeowners, even though the RBA might not be moving. Exactly. Because the competitive dynamics are changing, which is interesting. Anyway, you were saying something about like people are acting like interest rates could be could could go back to low. I guess is the could go back to nothing. <laughs> In effect, is that what you mean? No, I th- yeah, they're, they're, like not much has changed. Have you seen massive changes in portfolios, or are you seeing like there's little things like we're still relying on growth assets in most balanced portfolios? All the industry funds come out; they got seventy to eighty percent in growth. Surely, if interest rates are lower and our targets eight percent, seven to eight percent, we could put more in lower mm. risk assets. Should we be reconsidering strategic asset allocation? And then <clears throat> floating rates still more popular than fixed rate, mm. even. No, a lot of the rate rate increases have uh, already pushed forward, and then we're still allocating to private markets and some of the more uh, illiquid. illiquid asset classes, even though there's a massive amount of uncertainty around valuations at the moment. So, there was a um, shout out to Buyback Capital on uh, Twitter. Great follow f- for a bit of humour uh, and insight. Uh, did put out a it put out a uh, a bit of a fun tweet the other day with a meme of. Um, I'm trying to find it now. It basically showed someone with a profitable business idea and then a tsunami of super funds trying to allocate money to them. And that's basically what's kind of going on right now is like the super funds have so much money. They have so much money. What do they do with it, right? That's the big thing. Like they're writing billion dollar checks. Oh, they're getting billions in and as the super guarantee increases- they're getting more and more in every month, or at least the funds that have that have got younger member bases. Ten percent of every single person's wage yeah, like, is going into a super fund, and it's at quarterly at the moment, but eventually it's going to be yeah. monthly yeah. in a few years' time. Yep, uh, and it just reduces and reduces the investments available to you, and that's why uh, similar, like we were talking about it with the strategy last night, that you can do um, low cost listed equity. So that's why they're internalizing all their listed equity, similar to how you and I would buy IVV or Vanguard. Get, themselves. Yeah, very low cost there. And then Imagine you spend if, all your fee budget on private market assets and buying infrastructure. And Here's a question for you. What would happen, <laughs> what would happen if Australian Super, the chief investment officer at Australian Super, signed up for a self-wealth account? 
and blow they, up. <laughs> and they go, I'll just take a billion of BHP, $9.50, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a billion of Woolworths. <laughs> Surely there would, something would happen. But that's like the other side. But, but like, yeah. well, if the, you said nine dollars fifty, so um, uh, yeah, I guess that's interesting. Okay, is that what, is that what you consider? Uh, is that what you think about when you go to sleep at night? <laughs> no, but if you think about that, like, what would happen? You would be chaos, like because they obviously have to. But they, but they, my my point is, is in consumer land, like with smaller balances, like. Um, People, individuals like us, we can just go in buy the their shares, mid cap, small cap, doesn't really matter. But you get fund managers, they can't handle it. Then what about the juggernauts? They're done. Like that's why you're seeing I think what can they do? less and less companies on the ASX because they're being taken private. Sydney Airport went private. Mm. Uh, example last night, this is the Invesco strategy. They basically invest in unlisted smaller companies yeah. because that's that's one of the only areas where you can you can allocate without moving the market. Yeah, like you have to go private, otherwise you you move in the market on a daily basis. Yeah, well, um, uh, what was he saying? Ash was saying, um, like you basically want to spread in the private markets. You want to have multiple small positions, whereas in public markets you can afford to be a bit more concentrated because there's liquidity, there's all these other things. Here's a question. Privacy. For, yeah, this this question for you: If you can get five percent from a term deposit, so say if this is your yardstick, how much do you need? To look at private or distressed debt, like if you're just you, a genuine yeah, question. You, so, like, I actually led with this last night. It probably wasn't the best thing to lead with, which is <laughs> you need to rethink uh, how you're allocating portfolios at the moment. And we kind of see it as this ability, which we've talked about, to have more resilient sources of income. Mm. So we can go and buy fixed income or government bonds or term deposits, and that that you get the rollover risk that when twelve months comes up, you might be reinvesting at a lower level. Yeah. Uh, but you're looking at 14 to 16% returns and like 8 to 10% income from these strategies over a long period of time. Yeah. So if if you're, this is the, the thing, if you're interested in real diversification and reducing the volatility of your portfolio, you have to pay for it. And that's kind of where this comes in. So there's a dual question of how valuable do you see that diversification? Are you willing to pay for it? And then how much do you do you want that income? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Implications. Okay, now I'm going to jump straight to a hypothetical for you because we've got some other stuff we want to get to. NASDAQ, I was just looking at, if you can hear this noise, it's me tapping on the table, so sorry about that. Um, NASDAQ, first of all, how much is it up year to date? 42%. 46%. Oh, not bad. Higher or lower price earnings ratio? Than the start of the year. Lower. And you'd be correct. It is Microsoft, a trick question. Because Microsoft, Amazon, all these companies have uh, boosted it. Apple, NVIDIA have boosted earnings significantly in the second half, haven't they? Yep. So basically, earnings per share have risen for the whole, modestly for the whole in, index. But the stock price of things, some of the things have, hasn't. This is according to macro trends. So the price earnings ratio is about 22 times. The NASDAQ. That's what it says here. Yeah. So, is it that's a, not the 100, that's the full NASDAQ? Yes, yeah, yeah. a lot of companies in there, too. Yeah, I'm just gonna double wait, let me just double check. I'm assuming that gets rid of the ones that have infinity PEs. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're good. What are you talking about? Let me just double check this figure because uh, that's probably a good idea. That seems cheap. Yeah, one second, one moment, per favor. Dividend yields 2.5 percent. 
Well, that could be with capital gains. As I look at the ETF now. Doobie doobie doo. Why don't I have the. I mean, one of the interesting takeaways last night was this idea that you can. So, this strategy invests over eight years, and mm -hmm. this idea that a recession doesn't matter. And it probably you can apply that when you're building a portfolio as well. That if you're allocating over an extended period of time, or if you're allocating to areas where there's some room for, for an edge, that you can worry about a recession, and I'll go to that afterwards. Mm. But you're going to have opportunities to invest at each point over the next eight years. So why worry now about deploying capital when you'll have the opportunity to buy lower or buy higher, not that you want to at some point in the future. Well, you see, saying because it's five percent term deposits. Yeah, exactly. The normal question, as there always is at these dinners, there's always one person that is worried that there's going to be the recession to end all recessions. Oh, of course. Like the GFC, uh, the pandemic, I've been through enough. Yeah. Uh, and every at every point, even before and then during, there's this perception that it's going to end capitalism. Mm. And I mean, if we haven't worked out yet um, that capitalism doesn't end and the markets don't end regardless of how bad things get uh i mean it, it, i think people are getting more educated on that now that mm. they see it more as a buying opportunity than a reason to sell nasdaq 100 p ratio as of june 30th 37 go forward forward p ratio forward p 26 26 yeah you're right that's a really good guess <laughs> That is really good. Well done. Is there a clapping noise? There is. No? It's close enough. No? I don't know which button it is. Um, so that's not too bad. Like when you think a price earnings ratio on the NASDAQ, 26 forward. Yeah. That's 100. For, for companies that are growing fast. Yeah. A big group of companies are growing fast. A lot of people would be quick to say, well, it's up 45%. Don't buy it. Yeah. We have a question on that, which we'll get to in a I minute. got a bit of stick for my Amazon call during the week too. Did you get any feedback on that? No, what was the like feedback? Who, if you had to pick one of the fangs, which one wouldn't you own? Yeah, you said Amazon. You said Meta. Yeah, fair apparently enough. Meta was the easy answer. <laughs> yeah, it's the right answer. Well, what, what was the feedback you got? Are you serious? They own Amazon Web Services and they're the most powerful retailer in the world. Meta is clearly the one you wouldn't hold. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I agree with I like that. Whoever gave and, you this feedback. And, <laughs> It was very clear feedback, yes. Uh, so, so if, yeah. if you're new here, the question was, which of the big eight technology stocks in the US could you live without? Or like, would you, if you could take it out, which one would it be? You have to own the other ones. And I just, you, you said, get rid of Amazon. Just, I was like, whoa. Just go against Bezos. <laughs> yeah. Zuckerberg's doing his UFC now, yeah. so I'm a bit yeah. worried about that. <laughs> so in other news... Um, Woodside, 29% drop in revenue on lower prices. Got that $63 a barrel. They named a project oil. after you. Yeah, they got a... This is the thing that stood out to me in the whole thing. I haven't checked in with Woodside Group in a while. They got a project called Mad Dog. I feel like if you're going to name them something, name them something like Mad Dog. Anyway, that's the project off of Mexico, I think it is, where they're building... Um, they're on a new platform there. Uh, and they've, I think it's the first well, I could be mistaken. But um, basically, yeah, they said that the, the 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 production of oil and gas was down for the period, but they expected it to ramp up in the second half. Uh, I checked on dividends. Uh, not too many analysts forecasting dividends for the behemoth Woodside Group, but it looked like it was around about flat. So that might be on the way down if revenue keeps falling. In related news... BHP out with its production report. Iron ore up 2%, copper 3%, coal 4%. Energy coal was up quite a fair way. But the outlook was quite interesting. It's basically flat for everything, I think, except nickel. 
So like slight, slight positive iron ore down slightly. Um, so everything okay at the big Australian, um, but you got to watch that, uh, that, that, I guess, operating profit line for those dividends. I just shown the cyclicality. We, we always forget about cyclicality. You know, you've had incredible, it wasn't long ago where oil was almost zero. Uh, Negative. These companies needed to, yeah, for a short period of time. <laughs> Who can take my oil? <laughs> yeah, uh, and these companies needed, we're all like needing to raise capital, and then you get to the point where we price them in as being long-term dividend stalwarts. They're going to pay dividends forever, but they're cyclical. And you know, you this is why also why you don't rely solely on PEs like you were talking about before. The yeah. price earnings ratio for the Nasdaq is twenty-nine, but you you could go out and buy a Woodside or BHP. I'm not going to guess what they are, but they look cheap. You might get them on a 12 or 13 times PE, which Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham would say that's super cheap. But there's a reason because their revenue in sales is so volatile because it's linked to the price and production of single commodities. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why they appear cheap. I'm just going straight off Google Finance, so don't shoot the messenger here. I would normally log into like Ticker or Cap IQ or something. They're in single digit PE ratios. Sounds cheap, but it's a company that just saw 29% fall in revenue. It happens. like... There, there's an opportunity for dividend traps, right? Yield traps. Boring old diversification, though. Yeah. So well, you've always said the time to sell is when low peers are low and buy when peers are high. Exactly. Because the earnings are what matter there. Um, that's the thing that we should be tracking. Not that we trade. No, we're not traders. Actually, I've got a hypothetical question for you on that, too. I thought this would be more polarizing, and I hoped it would just ruffle a few feathers, but it definitely didn't. Maybe my following on Twitter is too loyal. But I basically come out and said, um, don't you love it when, uh, and I gave a holding period statement, how long is medium term in your t- in your mind, you, you personally, not for your clients at Waddle, what's medium term and what does long term mean to you? Three to five years is medium term. Okay. And then five to 50 years is long term. Jeez, that's a big range. It's a 10x well, we range. We forget, like this is, I don't, I'm not, I don't think it's in the golden rules, but... Um, you forget that when you get to 60, you're actually going to be investing on average for at least another 35 years. What do you, okay, on that, I'll pause you there. What do you actually find is the. Maybe not 35, maybe 28. When you're 60, what do you find is a typical asset allocation? So from just typical, I'm not, like, Most, we're, not yeah. we're not going profiles or whatever, but like just typical of someone who is. Someone who walks in? Yeah. I'd say they're all taking more risk in two in more ways than they should. Most people, and we saw it with a survey out recently, most people don't understand bonds. So they've usually got a whole heap of cash and turn deposits, maybe 15, 20%, mm-hmm. and then 80% in Aussie shares. So there's no bonds, no, no, that sort of no, stuff. Really. Even that's for retirees. So the older generation, the younger generations that we're, of investors that we're meeting, they're more progressive in terms of overseas and ETFs and understanding the need for global diversification uh, but definitely most people would probably have 80 percent in in growth assets and we're you know we're pretty it's hard it's a hard sell for us to say well you should be actually taking less risk uh and diversifying and yeah. you know when it's done averaging so well. that out it's like we're not a, a slick sales machine when yeah. it comes to that but that's what what do you need what risk do you need to take to generate the income that you need it shouldn't be the other way around yeah I just love that like the average holding period of fund managers is under six months yeah. and they all say they're long-term investors. No offense. <laughs> but like if you are a genuine fund... Okay, here's another question for you. And then you get questioned what? if your turnover is too low. Yes. Okay. Well, actually, let's, so quickly, 
quick education for anyone that's new here. Uh, turnover basically refers to, it's normally expressed as a percentage and it refers to the amount of the portfolio that was like sold or bought that year. So like if it's 20%, it's like the 20% of the portfolio was recycled basically, which means that if you flip it the other way, 20% is a five-year average holding period. Yeah. So You could also say there's two types of turnover though. So we, I always ask for what the name turnover is. So how many of your 30 stocks have you changed during that year mm-hmm. versus what you're referring to is how much have you totally traded right, yeah. like volume of all the things in there over the year. That's a good point because Which, one of them, well, the, the total turnover determines tax, Yeah, but the name turnover determines like philosophy and process. Exactly. Because it could, for example, it could be, you know, you're dropping BHP from eight to 7%, mm. which could be large turnover on a, on a kind of uh, volume or money basis, but on a name basis, you're still holding the same stock. Interestingly, um, I remember when I was invested in the Moat ETF, which is still really popular, nothing wrong with it, but in the Moat ETF, um, this is an ETF that targets, it's from Morningstar, does the research, it's from Vanek, and it invests in US companies that have a wide moat, in Morningstar's opinion, and a good valuation. And what was interesting is a lot of them turned over, basically a lot of them turned over because of the valuation. So like weights, valuation, and moat or quality. And I was disappointed that there was so much turnover in the names. Yeah. But it's because the valuation trigger hits and it gets automated. Yep. Yeah. So it results in a bit of tax, but that's okay. Um, okay. So you, you've answered that question then. Uh, I was just, I just get interested by that, that we have so many fund managers who are, seem to be really smart and think really well, but they don't, they, and they are long-term investors in their definition, but they don't have long term time horizons when they you actually look at their portfolio why do you think that is if you agree and there's multiple reasons there's there's career risk there's benchmarking risk and there's the growth of a of a company it's like you know these are ultimately businesses mm. so one of the challenges that the that a fund active fund manager will have is if they raise a lot of money and they're investing a lot of money they're going to be benchmarked to the index mm. uh, and investors know that they can buy the index for basically next to nothing they can buy the msci or the asx 200 for like seven five or six basis points yeah so they they as they get bigger their appetite to underperform the index can reduce not for everyone i'm not saying it's for every for everyone doesn't Mm. but that appetite can reduce which means they end up getting closer and closer to the 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 index and make less just accept the returns yeah Yeah. and they might lose some clients who are like i paid you to be active not passive but then the rest just forget and they're like oh good okay and you have to have really the other challenge is you have to have yeah your communication has to be great if you want to be incredibly different so there's a few successful groups yes i think you may be asked this on twitter this week yeah and it got some some interesting answers (laughs) yeah but you have to communicate well so there's a few groups that hold 15 stock portfolios and they tell you every stock they hold yeah. But holding 15 stocks, as you'd see in your own, is that it'll be, you'd be very different. Something Wild. we call active share will be very different to like 100% active share. So it won't act anything like the market. Mm. But you have, your the people investing have to know that. Otherwise, as soon as it, you underperform, they'll, they, there's a risk they sell out. And, and this is away. the thing. I think a lot of fund managers don't invest enough in their communication. I think the same for super funds. Oh, super funds are yeah. horrible. And APRA, or the, a couple of the regulators came out this week and said member engagement has to improve. The super funds are horrible, yeah. honestly. Like, it's because someone has an idea to communicate something to a 
the members. And then it goes through about 18 layers of compliance. And then the other end, it's just like, here's a statement link. <laughs> we're in that privileged position where we meet, and same as yourself. We, yeah. or we, when we recommend something, we say we have like 50 words to explain that in a, in a succinct way, or essentially three dot points mm. to, to explain a new investment or a new strategy. Mm. Uh, and I think that's can be misunderstood at, at the higher levels of, of the investment market. I don't know of any, like other than for ethical reasons, I don't know of any super fund, like big super fund that actually discloses why they make inve- like individual investments. I can't ever, res- like Future Super, Aussie Ethical, those. those they'll, they'll be very purpose driven. Yeah, they'll yeah. Ex- explain why they're backing a new company or. Yeah, but the others, I can't remember seeing that. But anyway, I've got another thing for you. Uh, maybe it's not a question, actually. It's more just like this. That led on to this point, which is that I think so many people talk about these wonderful businesses. You mentioned how you'd sell Amazon, which is fair enough and good. Bring the bring the feedback because let us know what you think. I'd love for people to say I disagree with you, and here's ten reasons why you're wrong. Um, but a lot of people say that they're long-term investors, and you look at the best companies on any stock market: Amazon, Nvidia at the moment, Tesla, Alphabet. Uh, Prometicus, WiseTech, CBA, CSL, whatever. And the one thing that, that every single one of them have in common with that good performance is you have to hold them for 10 years. Yeah. And Let the combating happen. Yeah. And get out of the way. And yet we don't do that as investors. So I looked at a Boston Consulting report and they said there are two trends that identify the value creators throughout the world. And CSL made the list. And here's a snippet of what they said. They said the companies play in the right market they benefit from the tailwinds, but importantly, this is, and I quote, while some companies were fortunate to start out in the right markets, many expanded into promising new market segments over time. Well-known examples of companies making such moves include Amazon, true, with web services, uh, Apple and Samsung with smartphones, Adobe with software as a service, and United Healthcare Group with managed healthcare. They said another thing. So the first thing is playing in the right markets, but that's not good enough. You can't just pick a stock that's like AI, boom, done. You have to actually find the companies that win those industries. And they've got so many examples here, but CSL was one of them. They expanded the footprint of their products. Um, So that they say, quote, leading companies sustained value creation by building and protecting strong market positions through differentiation and innovation. That's code for they reinvest and they know what their their strong, I guess, their strongest asset is. And that's it's like a, such a good framework, but you don't see that over five years. No, not at all. And so few, I mean, no, I think CSL put 2% of their revenue back in every year, like a billion dollars in yeah, R&D, it's a lot just of the stuff they may never, ever make money out of. Mm. Uh, and it's an, I mean, part of the nature of frame credits, pre-frame credits, post-frame credits, <laughs> is is that you aren't rewarded for doing that. Yeah, Your PE actually goes up because your earnings are lower because you're investing back in your business. So you kind of you're not rewarded, uh, particularly in Australia, for it. Interestingly, um, they would face so much pressure to jack up their dividend because it's their franking credits, but um, they just choose to reinvest. So they're kind of an anomaly. It's probably why they make the world's top list. Anyway, so just to quickly skip through some more of this news and stuff that's going on. Tesla. Tesla, super, super strong results. 47% increase in sales. Um, big result. Anything you want to add there? Uh, I think I was talking to a client last night who's, uh, he's got a different EV yep. and he was, t- he was saying, uh, yeah, uh, 
The Chinese one? Cupra. German, I think. Oh, Cupra. Interesting. Yeah, there's quite a few. He's he's on a mission to get EV chargers into a lot of apartment buildings. So, oh, cool. Uh, shout out to the Silver Mongoose, as he calls himself. <laughs> <laughs> we love a nickname. Uh, he was talking about, you know, Tesla's now cutting its prices on everything. But then I was reading an article that one of the investors that's, that's compounded and made 113% return yeah. off his Tesla holding, that meeting Musk and his CFO on day one, they're always intended to start at luxury and cut, 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 cut the price all the way down yeah. and basically win the market um, or build market share and then win other parts like the software, the automation Absolutely. and all those parts of it. It's a competitive advantage. It's, yeah. a, it's a Commodore of the future, mate. But everyone thinks of Apple and the ability to keep your price high and, the, and Uber premium, but it probably doesn't work in cars as There's much no competitive advantage. Yeah. You don't have one... Like most people don't have like one brand that they stuck with for the rest of their life. It's not a Tesla road. Exactly. Like you only get to use Tesla roads or something yeah. like that might be. They're trying to do that. They've, they've cornered all the infrastructure. Patent pending. Patent pending. <laughs> they've cornered all the infrastructure. So now Ford and all that have just given up and they just use Tesla chargers, which are so is, much better. That's amazing, yeah. Um, and the, the Tesla cars are just unbelievable, to be honest. Like I'm a total convert. Like I'm like drinking the Kool-Aid over here. Beautiful. Beautiful. But they... They have to lower the cost because if they don't do it, BYD is going to do it. It's pretty annoying the car park here. Tesla, they have Tesla charger the first two spots in the car park. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you got all the EVs, just standard yeah. EV chargers. And then we're just driving 13 levels up, <laughs> using petrol to go up 13 levels. <laughs> you could put the Cheers. electric ones on the top and then <laughs> Cheers, mate. me yelling at the wind. So. <laughs> Netflix, 5.9 million new subscribers after all the parasites were forced to pay for it. <laughs> Can I have my password back? <laughs> yeah. You should have heard the amount of phone calls that I got. Hey, I'm locked out of your Netflix. <laughs> yeah, well, get your own. <laughs> but prices have also gone up since I started with Netflix. I don't know about you. It was 15 bucks back in the day. Now it's 25 bucks for the same thing. Yeah. So massive, massive increase. Uh, I just, yeah. Um, yeah. I end up just rotating. Like mm. once upon a time you had Foxtel at 120 bucks a month. And now you have probably one ongoing and mm. then you have two or three that you switch on and switch off yeah when my well kids want disney they get disney we were kind of concerned about it. like we got like every one of them and we were like which one's going to be the first to go stan stan yeah sorry stan's <laughs> got to go there's a good show on there but it's got to go that's the problem there's always one there's, there's always one, one good show and you have to turn it back on like billions is coming right back time. so flight center uh huge increase in total transaction volume people traveling would you guess it um underlying ebitda at around about 300 million dollars is there expected for the midpoint which is up from their previous guidance of 270 to 290 um they say their corporate business is taking off why because businesses are spending on travel people going to huntington beach california for future proof would you hey, guess it? are you in I went to book my flights the other day, and then turns out my passport expires exactly one year minus four days from the date of travel. I to get a new one. So I had to get a new one. Yeah. So I have so to wait to, I'm waiting in. for that. Yeah, I'm in. But oh, yes. I, I had to wait. <laughs> yeah, That's a good one. Okay, final piece of news before we get to some questions, because we've taken a long time. I just wanted to touch on this thing. Zip. Tell us about uh, I, the- I I just happened Zip to get go. the press release for this, so I cut and pasted it in there directly from the press release, and I did not read it, and I don't want to read it. <laughs> Quarterly revenue, $193.8 million, up 21% year over year. That's Trend- really slow, to be honest. Like, that used to be 300% yeah, well, a year or two. They were away. acquiring back then. Um, transaction volume, up 6%. That's really low. $3.2 uh, billion. Cash transaction margin for the core business, whatever that means, improved again. 
to 3.1% for the quarter, up from 2.8. Yeah. Very strong. So you didn't write this. No, okay. Press release, cut and paste. Okay. Very strong revenue growth delivered by both the core markets of ANZ and ZipUS, they say. Although ZipUS is pretty pretty slow. Active customer numbers for the core business. I need to understand what this means. 6.2 million. That's a lot of customers. Could probably... Do they need financial advice? Maybe I can hear an acquisitions in order. Uh, Drew Merida from Model Partners. Um, <laughs> credit losses still... Um, you know, still recording credit loss. Pretty good, 0.85%. But if you think yeah. that's 0.85% of $2.3 billion. Yeah, that's in the US. Yeah. Value. Yeah, that's a that's a big number. But what's interesting also about this, Drew... The calculator doesn't go up there. <laughs> that's too big of a number. It's like 160 million. Uh, but what's interesting, is, I remember looking at PayPal's loss rates during the GFC. It was about 0.24%. Yeah. And what... They're totally different business models because PayPal extends credit for like that quick... Right. Well, at least they did back then. But now these modern day buy now, pay later business extend credit for weeks, months, years even. And that's duration risk in a rising interest rate environment. I don't want to get too nerdy on people, but I just think like such a hard business to predict. Such a hard. They need rates to go back to zero. (laughs) Not zero, but they need rates lower, clearly. (laughs) Uh, And um, to get the kind of growth they want again. Yeah. But the, the challenge you see there, and this is what they talked about during the pandemic, was that if your credit loss is 0.85% on value, on transaction volume of $2.3 billion, that's $16 million in losses. Yeah. And your profit is probably not much higher than that, or maybe it's maybe you're making $50 million in net income. Mm. So that, that loss rate is quite a significant portion of your profit. It's not much of your revenue, yeah. but it is of your profit. Oh, yeah. You cut straight through it, just like the banks, right? Yeah. It comes straight out of the Any loss, credit loss, comes straight out of the the profit, yeah. um, which is very interesting accounting, but it's probably accurate. Um, shares are down 47% in six months. So um, struggling, market cap 366 million. Anyway, let's get to some questions. We're way in, but we don't have that many this week, so we're happy to take a bit of time. Um, the questions this week, remember, if you uh, get your question on the show, whichever and will this week, and you uh, give us a funny name, we award the person with the funniest name uh, an award, and it is the Value Investor Program 499 Clams for free. Uh, you just need to write into us if we select yours as the number one uh, questioner name. It's really important to remember that you can ask your questions. That's us calling for questions for next week. By going into your podcast player and cl- clicking the link that says Ask a Question, you can also find that on any of the Rask sites. Final thing, if we do answer your questions on the show, we simply do not know your financial circumstances. So be creative with your question and know that any of the information that we deliver on the show is strictly limited to general financial information only. You can read the RAS Group's financial services guide on our website. And you should always speak to a financial planner like say Drew here or someone that you verify on the Money Smart website. You can find more information and there's a link that says financial planning in the show notes as well, which takes you to a page to learn more about Waddle Partners and RASC. Okay, so... I did have this opening question for... For O. Oh, yes. Go for it. With a made up, I might just come up with a made up name. Made up name is Your Terrible Muriel. Your Terrible Muriel. (laughs) It's the made up name. Got it. What'd they say? Uh, So the question here is it's a hypothetical. Which sector of the Australian economy is best positioned uh, for returns over the next 12 months? And I've put in a table of what the sectors have done over the last 12 months. So, so give me a hint. Gig we'll, sectors. We'll put, There's only 11 gig sectors. We'll put this in the, uh, the none show of the notes small page. caps. I took small caps out of there. I took all those ones because I know you try to get a bit tricky on that. But gig sector, 
Okay, so just so you know, you can get show notes for every episode uh, by following the link in your podcast player. It goes to the website, which has all the podcast show notes and links. So I'll put this image in there. So you're telling me which one, are you asking me which one of these geek sectors Do you will perform best, best over the next healthcare. 12 months? Healthcare. Yep. So healthcare was up 4.3% for 12 months. Healthcare. And the reason that I say this, not IT even, Jesus, that was up 37%. I didn't know that. Healthcare, because odds are in my favor, because over the last... 25 years, the healthcare sector overall has added the most value. How did you do this research when I only put this question in half an hour ago? I saw that you put it in <laughs> and then I was reminded of a BCG report that I read once. <laughs> healthcare, what are you going to say? I feel like that's boring. I'm going to put a, again, I'm going to get some stick for this as I always do. Yeah, classic. Property. It's property. A REIT sector. Oh, A REITs. Oh, we, we talked about this last week. Yeah. That there and would it, be some bombed out units that bounce back. Yes, exactly. It doesn't need to be uh, solely the share prices going up or valuations not falling. But it could just be that that gap between net tangible asset value and the share price closes it closes up a little bit. Okay. Uh, and there were a couple of articles that popped up in the in the fin today that. Uh, so A REIT stands for Australian Real Estate Investment Trust. Basically, Australian offices, warehouses, and commercial properties. Properties. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Okay. So that. Fell 1.6% in June, but was up 3.1% in the 12 months. So the best performing sector overall was IT at 37%, utilities at 15 materials at 15 and then it dropped down to discretionary at, uh, sorry, communications at Telstra, 13. But Telstra, basically. Basically Telstra. Uh, basically Andrew Derriman's call on Telstra. Oh, no, that was Drew's, sorry. Um, so, yeah, I would go that. And that's interesting. So I think healthcare, just because I'm just stacking the odds in my favor, but- I mean, if you look at the price-earnings ratio of some of those tech stocks, okay, in Australia, they're a bit exy, but overseas, if you expanded this to overseas, I mean, it's not that expensive. Now, the big techs, like, trading the same as Woolworths. And they've costed out. So, yeah. um, anyway, so one of our first questions actually comes from, actually, I, I might jump to the second, is it the second one first? Fashion Phil. Fashion Phil says, hi, new listener and beginner investor. Fantastic. Good on you. Um <laughs> No, like good on you for being a beginner investor and starting in this market. A lot of people would be scared off with higher interest rates. I was laughing at the, you, Kim calling you out for your, for your clickbait title. Oh, yeah, no, he did, yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Fashion Phil says, couldn't help but notice the flee the NASDAQ title from the July 1 episode. I wanted to start my investing journey with two ETFs. Here am I scaring them off, trying to tell everyone that we do education, including VAS and NDQ giving me exposure to the three things I want, Australia, the US, and tech. Do you have any comments regarding an approach like this or further comments on fleeing the NASDAQ after listening to the July 1 episode? You didn't scare me off just yet. Well, I don't think we're that harsh, were we? No, the thing is, it said flee the NASDAQ in the title because remember that week we had two questions. Oh, yeah. One was from a female listener, I believe, who said, I'm thinking of like- Oh, dropping the NASDAQ. Yeah, dropping yeah, yeah. the NASDAQ. And the other one was like, the concerns. market's going to crash. Yeah. I need to short it kind yeah. of thing. And I was like, so what to bring those things together? That's what a lot of people are thinking, right? Um, so good headline. Most listened to episode over the last month. <laughs> <laughs> Felt a bit clickbaity. Yeah. Probably went a bit too far with that one. Sorry there. But I'm glad you went below the, uh, the, you didn't just read the headline and then just go with that. Because we did say in that, that we wouldn't do that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we were actually quite optimistic. Um, so how's it put you off, Drew? No, it has not put me off. Okay. I mean, you, we were just saying before the Nasdaq's at twenty-two times, but more importantly, the first concern they had last in that July one episode was that in that a recession was going to hit and it could impact the businesses. 
And the second one was more about, I think, higher discount rates. So the benefit if you're a beginner investor and you're younger is that you're going to be investing in the NASDAQ over 10 or 15 years. So it's, it's not a major concern. As, yeah. long as, as long as your time frame is able to to deal with the volatility that will come. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is just us generally speaking. We talk about these things because Drew and I, as you just heard before, we apply very, very long-term time horizons to the way we think, and we've been doing this a while. And what I would say is that we can't comment specifically on the way you've allocated or created your portfolio, but you've... Everyone listening to this knows that our probably bias is towards, I think it as a pair, our bias is towards quality companies that can compound over a very long period of time. Um, but also to be somewhat contrarian in that most of what you read in the headlines is not the reality. Um, like that, I love that Jason Zweig line. He says, um, I'm paid an annual salary to write the same thing every day 250 different ways or whatever yeah. and basically saying that the good investing long-term investing advice doesn't change but you need a headline every day yeah and so this is was an example of that where the headline might say you know this is playing into the emotion of the crowd but the reality is things are actually pretty good you know we, we may enter a recession and a lot of people think sell i don't think google's gone out of business because the economy's slowing down I don't think Apple's going out of business. Maybe it records some lower profits. Spending might slow down. But there was um, some kind of good stories last night, which were, you know, if we're hitting a recession now, we actually had a pretty bad recession in the beginning of the pandemic. And you've had this big switch in interest rates. It's increased, you know, every, mm. every part of the cost in your business has been increasing over the last few months. And a lot of companies are already disappearing. We've seen like a lot of those liquidations or administrations. So it may be that it, a lot of the, more challenged businesses won't struggle as much during the recession. You've actually got people who are recession-proof yeah. and you've seen it coming. Now, you've seen interest rates coming and we've known they were increasing for the last 12 months. So most most businesses don't stand pat in that environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, notice how we haven't mentioned the RBA governor's name. I know. <laughs> I was just thinking that with 48 minutes <sighs> in. Normally, normally it's Phil Lowe, there's Phil Lowe. <laughs> What's happened? <laughs> uh, a bit of a stamping on the feet there. Okay. That's <laughs> me walking out. <laughs> uh, Andrew Derriman. Andrew Derriman. Uh, so David End, which reminds me of Dividend, but David End says, when investing in dividend stocks for passive income, don't we love that? Remember that passive income series we did with Self? Oh, that's the most popular ever. Um, yeah, so one of our videos like 100,000. It's crazy. Was that the dividend ETF or the Aussie share ETF? Aussie shares. Yeah. Yeah. Is that 100,000? That's something crazy. Wow. Um, When investing- Waddle Partners highest rate. Guess who that's with? (laughs) Oh, really? Uh, uh, Glass? Bill Mitchell. Oh, Bill Mitchell. Uh, MMT, it's real. Um, So when investing in dividend stocks with passive income, should you be dissuaded, what a word, by 0% franking? It seems that 100% or high percentage franking credits dividends should always be the best choice. So franking credits, for those of you that are new to this, are a tax credit that the company pays on your behalf and you recoup it when you claim uh, your tax or do your tax return. So basically, it's a tax credit that improves your after-tax return. And some dividends have 100% franking, which is the maximum amount, and some have less. Macquarie Group is a good example of a business that doesn't have 100% franking off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure it's 50, partially yeah, 50 franking. 50 or 75, yeah. Uh, CSL does not, as far as from memory. I think it's very modest franking. Yeah. Um, CBA is 100% franked. 
BHP is 100% franked. So what I'm getting at here is many of the best companies of this generation don't have full franking. So I don't think this should be the number one thing that people look at. No, I think if you're looking at two companies and the yields are similar and one's got franking on it, you'd prefer, and the oh, companies sure. were similar, you'd definitely prefer the franking. It's a free kick in a lot of in a lot of parts, but it does tilt your portfolio to companies that are paying out all their profits. Yeah, so you end uh, up with a lot of banks time. and miners. Yeah. And so we, we, and this is the old income plus growth yep. equals total return. So what you're referring to is a Macquarie group where their dividend isn't as franked and they're paying, not paying out as much dividend and CSL where their dividend isn't franked and not paying out as much but either. they're growing wicked yeah. fast. And you want that mix of reinvestment to hope that the company is growing at the same time. So uh, it is a free kick, particularly if you're in a low tax rate environment, it makes sense to have a portion, a good solid portion invested in mm. frank dividends. But I think income is income and you're more worried about where that income's coming from and how resilient it is yep. rather than solid. Because companies can run out of frank credits as well, yep. which we forget about. Yeah. Some of them have a lot of franking credits. Like Telstra from memory has a lot of franking credits. I think um, Borrell. Was yep. an example. Where right. If you stop making profits and you have a couple of tough years and you're still paying out frank dividends, you run out of frank credits and then you end up paying unfrank dividends. They also had that situation, didn't they, where they divested? So Borrell being like the industrials business, didn't they um, divest a lot and they probably would have attached franking credits to that? So companies Capital can returns. And, yeah, yeah, companies can do something called a special dividend where they use their franking credits to send back. So they say we've got so much franking credits. We were going to pay a $50 million dividend, but we might pay 100, so 50 plus another 50, and attach more franking credits so we can get rid of the franking credits and our shareholders can use them. At the end of the day, personally for me, um, in a diversified portfolio, yeah, sure, I agree with Drew. If you can have franking, take it. But imagine if you only went for franking and then you totally didn't look at the US stock market over the last two decades. That would have yeah. been a major mistake. So moderation, I guess. McDividend says... Help. Some of my ETF holdings have DRPs available, dividend reinvestment plans or distribution reinvestment plans, but never distribute enough to reinvest due to the difference in total dividend to price. What are the best solutions to enable I get the compound returns I deserve in this scenario? That is, save and reinvest when there's enough, put into a different stock, etc. So one of the things as context matters here, if you have an ETF and say the ETF's share price is $500, but you only get $300 in dividends, but you've set it up to reinvest. It won't reinvest. Yep. So um, you've got to be careful with this because you don't know where the money ends up. Um, and I think some, in some instances it can be donated to charity even. So um, like- It sits in there. Sits registry. in that lost, yep. lost money thing. So I just say, don't have the dividend reinvestment plan on. That's our, and our default across our business is put it into the cash account and redeploy. In this case, if you want to automate it, we'll put a calendar reminder at the end of every quarter when your distributions come out mm. uh, and when you've got enough, reinvest it Yeah, in, it, in one sum. Yeah, you don't have, you pay the brokerage, but it's avoiding the issue you, you have. There's to. a lot of dumb things that happen with ETFs though. Like in this instance, like right now, people are waking up. And I made this a comment in an email the other day. Some people are waking up right now and getting dividends in their account. And they're not realizing that that may also include some capital gains proportion yep. in there. And so they think, oh, big dividend. And they're actually just getting some of their capital back because of the weird structure yeah. underneath. Exactly. So if you have a dividend reinvestment plan, people think, well, that's an easy solution. It just reinvests. But sometimes if- You're reinvesting capital as well as- Yeah. Yep. So you just got to make sure you're aware of that. And as Drew said, you know, it's under 10 bucks to buy ETFs and shares these days. So it's probably not as big of a deal as it was five or 10 years ago when they had- 
They used to have discounts on these things as well, where you could get a discount for doing it. Uh, Julie Andrews said, is that a fake name? Um, as a new customer, I'm looking at opening a term deposit for $250,000 redos with Judo Bank. Judo Bank, who appeared on the Australian Business Podcast recently, the two co-founders. But how do I know that I'm not actually that I'm actually dealing with them? At a time when scams are at an all-time high, dealing solely online is risky. What checks can I do to ensure I'm actually dealing with Judo? Just so you know, Judo Bank um, offers term deposits, but it's speciality, and it's growing faster than that, but its speciality is small business banking. Loans start from, I think, $250,000 for small businesses and medium businesses. How do you check? I mean, it's very hard. You've <clears throat> got your normal encryption on your on your web browser, which is always important, and mm -hmm. it, it usually is pretty good at telling you whether you're on the a padlock in website, the top corner. I think. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's very difficult to check. And you, I think one one lesson, which would be from what we talked about earlier this year, and in, in scams, is never you should never be transferring money to an account, and most and you shouldn't be getting an outreach from a bank to ask you for no. codes or information. So when you're opening these term deposits, you would usually be set up by a direct debit agreement uh, and it's all incredibly clear and you're signing off on it all. Mm. Uh, and then ensuring that they're using proper identification processes, uh, like Okta was one that you've probably referred yeah, to Okta, in the US, yeah. but whatever those identification processes, there's multiple applications and the legitimacy. But um, the other one would be don't you know, go direct to Judo's website. Don't sign up for term deposits or investments when you when you get an outbound email. Never, ever, That's probably the key, ever click on a link. Should have led with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if it's an outbound email, don't do it. Even text, there's lot, they're really sophisticated with their text yeah. these days. They'll do what they'll do, Julie Andrews, um, is they will. They know that there's like 1.6 billion Apple users, so what they'll do is they'll just fish. They'll just try and hope that they send a message to say, "Hi, this is Apple. Click this link to get your free prize or whatever." Um, and they do it with Google and they do it with Amazon and they do it with this and they do it with Coles. Never, ever, ever click a link. NAB sent me a, speaking of banks, NAB sent me a message the other day said, we've updated our policies. You will never receive a link or anything that you can click via, an, via a text message. And they even said in their email uh, update, I believe they said, do not click links in our emails, go yeah. straight to our website. Yeah. And obviously once you get to the website, look in the top corner, but it just means that you just need to educate yourself on a bit of the cybersecurity stuff in the background to have secure passwords. By far the most risky part uh, in all of this is the user. The user is the single biggest point of failure in any security stack. It's where the user has the same password, 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 password ABCD, one, two, three, four, QWERTY, QWERTY. Um, <laughs> top of the keyboard. Just don't make it the same. Make it really encrypted. There's a, um, a, a YouTube channel called Computer File, and uh, there's this awesome video over there where these computer scientists show that basically if your password is under nine characters, they can write a computer, like a al simple algorithm, that could probably crack that code in a few seconds if you use under nine characters in your password. Um, so that's, that's just a really sensible thing. But also give them a call. That's a big one. Judo banks or relationship banks. So final question comes from Crypto for Never. Like this question and name. Hi guys, love the pod. Last week ownership structure of ETFs was discussed discussed. We did get a bit nerdy on that one, Drew. I understand that if an ETF provider fails, the underlying shares are safe as they are held by a custodian. What would happen if a custodian was to fail? 
I hold multiple ETFs issued by two separate providers, but both providers use the same custodian, hence my question. Thanks and commiserations to Andrew on missing out on the Reserve Bank gig. It's a bloody sad thing. <laughs> so custodians failing. I haven't come across this in Australia. It might have been one or maybe a sub-custodian failed. Yeah, it's yeah. very hard in Australia to know exactly where <laughs> your money is because they do use sub-custodial structures, meaning the custodian points another custodian points another custodian. Um, but that has to be clearly defined in the product disclosure statement for your ETF, so it would be on their website. Um, many of the big custodians in this country are also many of the big custodians around the world. So HSBC, um, Perpetual, yeah. uh, all of them. They're all in there. Bank of New York. And then it's not the assets of the custodian, right? That's yeah. probably the... Yeah, that's it. That's it. They're segregated accounts. They should be segregated accounts. They're audited. They're checked. Um, if they have an AFSL, like to be a custodian or to be a trustee is another role that is fulfilled behind the scenes. Those are some of the most stringent regulated things you'll ever see in your life. And they're never going to be able to access your assets no. to no. if they were to go bankrupt. And what usually happens in if a custodian goes bankrupt is one of the other giant custodians takes them over. Yeah. And you're essentially, you just, you, it's a custody, custody switch. And it's incredibly, it's yeah. like a contract passes. Uh, and I think because it's so concentrated and so small, there's, there aren't many of them. Yeah. Governments are usually highly involved in, in making sure there's an orderly process. I'll tell you the one that that's where I, I think they're regulated by APRA or? I think they probably, well, that's a good question. I don't actually know off the top of my head if it's ASIC or APRA. It'd have to be probably both, to be honest, because the AFSL would come through ASIC and APRA would be the systemic risk side. But anyway, um, I'll tell you the thing, this doesn't keep me up at night. I'll tell you the thing that keeps me up at night for ETFs, Drew, market makers. Yeah. They're the things that, yeah, you ask me what keeps me up, what I think about, and I, that would be the only things that keep me up. Market makers being the people on the other side of the, yeah. the contract when you're buying and selling. Yeah. yeah. And, and creating, bundling up the units that you buy each time. They send over to Global X and they and send you, over to Vanguard. And you're worried that, I mean, they're also some of the biggest groups in the world, like the UB, I guess the UBSs and the big investment banks. Yeah. So you're Deutsche banking Bank. on their, their solvency uh, to be on the other side of that deal. Yeah, Otherwise, it's not, the spread starts to It's not because they would take your money with them. It's actually just because they wouldn't be there when you go to sell. That's that's the thing, or when you go to buy. Um, and so what we saw during the GFC was just the first real test for ETFs. We saw the difference between the share price of an ETF and the underlying investments inside of it deviated for bonds. And this is why we always say when you have an ETF, an ETF is really only good for things that can be bought and sold quickly, like a shares ETF or really big bonds like government bond ETFs. Anything that gets a bit murky, um, is when what I was saying is the market maker, the person or the company that makes that transaction happen um, goes a bit funny. Anyway, so we've had some great questions come through. Did you look up that APRA thing? Uh, I did. Okay. And while you do that, uh, we've got to do two things. ASIC, I imagine ASIC would be the, the lead on that. Um, we've got to pick the question and name. So the question and name uh, for this week, I think I'm quite happy with actually the first one that we went Not with. the one I came up with. Fashion Phil. Yep. Fashion Phil, who asked a question, beginner investor asked about the NDQ and the VAS ETF. I think that was a great question. We didn't mean to scare you off. Maybe this is me just feeling sorry. Um, we didn't mean to scare you off. I'm glad you read below the headlines or listened, I should say. Um, we had a great conversation today, but we'd love some more questions for next week. We did get a heap last week, so perhaps everyone was a little bit exhausted. Um, <laughs> but we do have uh, a lot to get to over coming weeks. And don't forget... Pink Floyd Money is the official theme song of the Australian 
Rask Roadshow. We're coming to a city near you. Chances are, unless you're in Melbourne, um, which is where we are right now. Uh, we are going to Perth. You get good reds, I think. Is it red over in the Margaret River? Cab South. It's Cab South. Bordeaux oh, blend. Well, hello. Uh, then we'll be going to Radelaide. Radelaide, yes. Yep, that's a, everything's 10 minutes away, including the Rask Roadshow. Come oh, along for a drink. It's on a Friday night. There aren't many on a Friday night. so I'm trying to work out my flights. Before. That was, <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> then we've got Terrelgan, Eastern Victoria. Uh, then we go mm. north to Wangaratta in Victoria. Then we've got some time to be spent in Sydney, Newcastle, Port Macquarie, Brisbane, Townsville, and Huntington Beach. Huntington. Well, that's not a rash road show, but we should call it a rash road show. We should just take over that one. Uh, Townsville, Gold Coast as well. And you know what, Drew? I reckon we're going to go over a thousand seats easily throughout the whole road show. How many sold? We've already sold about five fifty, maybe more, maybe closer to six hundred by the time this goes live. Credit to you. Thank you, thank you, sir. I'll say that when we go to Hunter's Invention Credit here. Just walk around. Uh, yeah, nearly 600 tickets. And I think Sydney will be- Pretty big too. Triple yeah. the size of all the others. So that's going to be so much fun. If you're around, you can use the coupon code FRIENDS and it gets you three for two or six for four. You get 33.33% off. That's the that's the value of the coupon code. Um, so you can bring your friends That's and we bring your family. That's what we want. So um, take us away. Oh, you can get in contact with Drew Meredith and the team. We have updated our, wa- our website finally. Oh, you, you can have see our team on there. Waddlepartners.com.au. Not, the not the whole website. Not the whole website. Just the people. So I think a lot of been, people who have been on our website thought there were only four of us. There are actually 11 of us. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's incredible that you did so well for so long. Yeah. <laughs> there is a team. Um Wow. Oh, yes, there is indeed a whole team smiling, got the teeth out. I like it. And there's a few more as well. Yeah. Uh, Annette's joining us. Shani's joined us. We just don't have a photo of her yet. Okay. Uh, so, a growing team. And I've got a photo with a shirt, not a T-shirt on <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, you can uh, you can head to the link in your podcast player, fill in the automated form. It gets sent straight to the team and they'll get in contact with you at waddlepartners.com.au. Uh, Dr. Andrew Derrimuth is also looking for employment he did say that he's very disappointed with the RBA jo- uh, decision, but understands that- I wish Michelle Bullock yeah, well. He yeah, sends his commiserations and um, also that he is looking for a job at Goldman Sachs. So Goldman Sachs, if you're listening, <laughs> right into us. I could do three jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, you can get in contact with me uh, at the RASC website and get your roadshow tickets in the show notes. Don't forget that. Um, all right, Drew, take us away. You've got a bit of a joke. Yeah. Off into the sunset. Here we go. I'm going real dad here. It's, I think this one, I think okay. you'll like this one. Go. Did you know it was illegal to laugh out loud in Hawaii? You have to keep it to a low ha. I think this is all I've got for this. This is us going off into the right. Aloha to you too, sir. <laughs> Thankfully, we're flying over Hawaii in a few weeks. But, um, mate, as always, pleasure. Thanks for joining me. It's good to see you. <laughs> For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, 
I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.